Well, good morning to each of you and welcome to the service this morning. And uh, thank you to Ben for filling in uh, for Kevin such last minute and uh, for the rest of our, our worship team as well. Well, today uh, we finished the, our series through Joseph, and today we're going to start a new series, and it's, uh, it's a series addressing a number of topics that are central to both the Christian life, our culture, and our daily experiences with sin, sorrow, and suffering. And you see the, the title there on the screen, Where the Battle Rages, God's Word and Our Broken World. Where the battle rages, God's word, and our broken world. Now, where the battle rages, this means we're going to talk about things that could be labeled as hot-button issues or hot topics, but it's, it's, really, it's really more than that. There, we're addressing topics that perhaps are more on the front burner of a Christian's mind, Addressing things going on in culture, the culture around us, within the church itself, and even within our own heart. And so uh, this will be uh, uh, just a, a, a kind of a topical series as we get ready to, to hit the ground running in the fall with a lot of other things uh, on board. But we'll be addressing topics and going through things such as discerning God's will for our lives. Satan, demons, and spiritual warfare, fighting, lingering sin, addressing current sexual ethics, and especially pornography. We'll be talking about money and abortion and evangelism in today's culture. But we're not just going to talk about them. That's not the goal, just to talk about them or air out whatever ideas we may have. We want to go to God's Word, and we want to see what God's Word says about where those battles rage in our broken world and in our broken hearts and in our broken lives. And we're going to have the privilege, uh, Lord willing, throughout the next 10 weeks as we, as we do this series together to hear from a couple different uh, guest speakers. One will be a missionary, uh, Wayne Vanderweer. He'll come in and, and speak on the topic of, of uh, soul care and how to care for our souls as we face anxiety and depression and fear and all those things. Uh, I've scheduled a, a good friend of mine, Chuck DeClean, to come and speak to us on what evangelism looks like in our culture today as we face uh, the culture of 2022. And so throughout the next several weeks, you'll get the opportunity to hear from uh, friends of ours in the faith and, and uh, walk through this, and I think it'll be a blessed time for you. This morning, however, we're talking about the topic of God's will, or the will of God. Now, you may be familiar with Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and you're welcome to turn there. This really won't be the main passage we're in. We're going to kind of jump throughout Scripture to try to get as big a picture as we can, but we do want to ensure we're being faithful to what Scripture has to offer to us, but... Perhaps when you think of the will of God, you think of Romans chapter 12, or maybe other passages of scripture, but this one was one of the first to come to my mind. Romans chapter 12, where Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual, spiritual worship. 
then he says this in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Why? That by testing you may discern what is the will of God. And he goes on to describe the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect. Now I'm imagining that every Christian in here has asked the question, God, what do you want me to do? And perhaps you've even pulled your hair out saying, God, what is your, what's your will for my life? What do you want me to do? Often a sense of the unknown leaves us anxious and afraid. And perhaps we even are afraid, what leaves us most afraid is that what if we mess up on which car to buy? Or which state we need to move to? Or which city we should move to? I mean, what if, we, what if we get that wrong? What if God's will was for me to move to Denver, but instead I moved to Houston? Or what if God's will was for me to marry somebody else and not the person I married? And so perhaps we sit there and we cry out, God, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? And we pull out our hair saying, God, what's your will for my life? And we try to figure out, well, God, I mean, what if I mess up on, you know, which car to buy? Or what am I, what am I going to do? Am I going to, what if I anger God if I get it wrong? Thomas Brewer provides a helpful insight when he says, the struggle to find God's will is a struggle with certainty. We naturally seek as much certainty as possible in regard to decisions. Certainty helps us feel more in control. And when we feel in control, we feel safe, end quote. Now, discussions on the will of God, and as a pastor for a number of, of years now, I've learned that normally when it comes to questions on what's God's will for my life or what does God want me to do, it normally does revolve around those things. Discussions uh, revolve around which car to buy. Or, you know, does God want me to have two kids or does he want me to have four kids? Or 13 kids. How many kids does God want me to have? Does God want me to live in Houston or in Denver? Does God want me to buy this house or that house? Who does God want me to marry? Where does God want me to work? Where does God want me to go to school? And I've learned that probably, I don't know if I can put a percentage on it, but I would say 99% perhaps. 99% of the conversation regarding God's will revolves around those things. Yet, I want you to notice something because it shows us about how we think. It shows us that conversa conversations about God's will revolve around us and our desires, like Thomas Brewer says, for certainty. Because when we have certainty, we feel safe. Now, I just want to say at the front here, we're not asking bad questions about bad things. Okay, we should seek to make wise decisions when it comes to the things we just listed. But there's a danger when it comes to conversation about God's will that revolve around us. And there's a danger that, when it co that comes with conversations about God's will when simply God has not revealed his will on. Because there are things 
that God has not revealed his will on. There are things that God has not revealed to you or to me, and we'll talk about that as we go on. But really, I think the danger is when we start asking those questions, God, what do you want me to do? Who do you want me to marry? What job do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? What, 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 I think there's, the danger is, is that we start to look for answers in unbiblical ways. Now, there's the, what I call the open the Bible randomly and point to a verse approach. R.C. Sproul calls, the, uh, calls this a way to lucky dip scripture. If you don't know what lucky dip means, neither did I until I looked it up. It's a, it's a British uh, phrase, and it's actually a title of a game where we, we've played games like this. Small prizes are concealed in a container, and you choose at random which one you want. So maybe it's, you know, you, you punch the hole, and you grab, and you see what you got. And that's kind of the idea of what many Christians think about finding God's will. Open the Bible randomly and point to a verse. So we ask God to show us his will and we open the Bible randomly. Or maybe we just open it according to our Bible reading schedule. We say, okay, I'm in Lamentations chapter 4 today. Somewhere in here, God is going to give me his will on what car I want I need to buy. Or who I should marry or something like that. And so we ask God to show us his will. We open the Bible randomly. And we expect God to tell us exactly what we want to know. And so we say, God, please show me your will and what you want me to do. Flip open, there it is. And Saul took his sword and fell on it himself. I think I'll try again. Or think about that young teenage girl who has dreams of her knight in shining armor. And she's dreaming of her future and this man who she wants to marry. And she says, Lord, who do you want me to marry? Now Eglon was a very fat man. Probably want to try again. Perhaps there's the, if I act good enough, God will show me exactly what he wants me to do. Somebody say, I really need to show, I really need God to show me where to move or where to work or what he wants. And so if God isn't giving me the specifics of what exactly I should do, then I must be doing something wrong. So, maybe if I'm good enough, he'll bless me with knowledge. If I just do the right things, if I listen to the right music, if I show up to church, if I read my Bible, if I pray, if I, as long as I do stuff not to make God angry, God will show me exactly what he wants me to do. And if God is angry, then he won't give me what I want or won't answer the questions I want him to answer. If I'm not good enough, then God's not going to show me anything. Is that how God operates? Is that how he operates? If you're good enough, then God will treat you in some extra special ways and reveal to you an extra special will he has for your life. When the Bible says there is none righteous, no, not 
One, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We'll never do anything good to earn anything from God. If God were to give us what we deserve or what we've earned, then we would all be in hell right now. What God gives us, he gives us by his grace. Here's a final approach to, and there's probably many more we could think of, but maybe there's another approach to this. There's the, that person is super spiritual and speaks for God approach. Perhaps it's a grandfather, a parent, a spiritual friend, a pastor, whoever. And you think, that person probably speaks for God. Like, God's not going to tell me, but that spiritual mentor of mine, or my grandfather, or my mom, or my dad, whom I trust to get, give me spiritual wisdom, that they speak for God, so whatever they say is like God. Anybody, is this kind of in the way? I should, I should bring my phone. Okay. Do you guys see me now? I know you wanted to see me. Okay. So... And so we do that. Now the Bible does tell us in Proverbs it's good to seek wisdom from others. There's, there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. But we must be careful to elevate their words to the words of God. As if God is telling them something very specific that he refuses to tell you or to tell me. And when we elevate someone to that, that's a problem. When we expect the spiritual influences in our life to speak with the same level of authority of God, then we have gone wrong. And so we must be careful. Because a lot of these conversations on what is God's will for my life leads us many times into looking for God's will in unbiblical ways. Instead of accepting the fact, and we'll talk more about this again, that there are just simply things in your life that God will not show you what to do. What we need in the world today are Christians who obey what God has revealed in his word and not worry about the things he hasn't revealed. This is Deuteronomy 29, 29. Do you know the verse? The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed... They belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So the secret things belong to God, but the things that God has revealed, he has revealed for us and for our children so that we can do his revealed will. There are things that God has and has not revealed. There are things that he wills, that he plans, that he decrees, that he has not shared with us. And there are things that he wills and commands us to do that he has revealed to us because he's shown us in his word. So what we need in the world today, we need Christians who delight in doing God's revealed will. We need Christians who are willing to abandon self-will and selfish desire for the sake of God's glory. We need Christians who find their nourishment in doing the will of God. And don't scrape after selfish ambition and sinful appetites to try to fill their soul, but to find their nourishment like Jesus did 
in doing the will of God and doing all things for the sake of his glory. We need Christians who aren't caught up in the phraseology of today's world. What do I mean by that? The church today is caught up in a win in Rome, do as the Romans do sort of mentality. The church today is caught up in a win in Rome, do what the Romans do sort of mentality. And that goes for a lot of Christians. Immorality and selfish behavior is the norm among our culture. The word of the culture is you need to do whatever you need to do to get ahead. If it's immoral business practices, do it. Immorality and selfish behavior. It's almost Christians are thinking that if if I want to keep up with the culture, if I want to make it anywhere in this culture, if I want to be successful in this culture, then I've got to do what everybody else is doing. I've got to do what the Romans do. But a study on the will of God reminds us that we cannot serve two masters. We either delightfully follow our own wills, according with the culture and the sin within us, or we delightfully follow God's will. There's no, there's no mixture of the two. Jesus said that. You can't serve God in money. You can't serve two masters. So our theme for this morning as it concerns God's will is this. Delightfully obeying God's will is the cure for self-centeredness. Which again, I get that word self-centeredness from that sort of you need to be doing what you yourself needs to do. Do what the Romans do. Do whatever you can to get caught ahead. Feed yourself, love yourself, serve yourself, do your own thing. But in order to kill self-centeredness and delight in God's will, we must understand what the Bible says about the will of God. And that's going to be the focus this morning. Now, when we talk about the will of God, you might think it's actually pretty simple. It's the will of God. But there's actually three aspects of the will of God that we need to talk about. And we'll talk about how they kill self-centeredness. And we'll try to center our hearts on delighting in God's will. Because that when you delight on God's will, your self-centeredness and self-will will be put to death. So I'm going to give you three aspects this morning of the will of God. And try to make it as plain as possible without being too complicated. Although there's a lot more we can say about any one of these Three aspects, now I want to say three aspects, not three different wills, it's three aspects of a God who wills. Number one, it's God's secret will. And we read this from Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord. So we're just looking at the first half of that verse, really. God's secret will emphasizes his sovereign control, his sovereign purposes, Now, this is what the reformers would call the will of decree. And you can remember that if you want, you can write it down, but it's really God's secret will. That is, this is the aspect of God's will that deals with everything that ever happens. Okay, this will includes, again, this aspect of God's will includes the governing control of all things at all times. It includes God's determining of everything that will ever happen happen from the fluttering of the butterfly outside to the most evil thing in the world the crucifixion of Jesus Christ God's secret will includes everything that will ever happen he is in complete 
sovereign control. Now, we don't know what God's secret will is unless God reveals it to us through prophecy or we actually experience it in real time. So really, the only way you get to know God's secret will is if whatever he planned actually comes about. But you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. James says that. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but God does. So we don't know what God's secret will is unless God gives it to us via prophecy or we experience it in life. But I think even our recent series through the life of Joseph helps us understand the secret will of God. Remember Genesis chapter 50 verse 20 where Joseph says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Tons of verses we could use to talk about this. But just think about it. The brothers broke God's revealed will, and they did evil, hateful, sinful things against Joseph. But the secret will of God was not revealed to Joseph until the end when he started to realize that, listen, this was God's, God was bringing the situation about to save lives. So the brothers weren't like, oh yes, the whole idea here is that if we sell you into slavery, God is going to use this, and actually he's going to bring about the salvation of many people. That was God's secret will. He didn't reveal that. What he did reveal is that you shouldn't hate your brother, you shouldn't try to murder him, you shouldn't sell him into slavery, you should not do evil things against your brother. That was God's revealed will. They broke all those commands. Yet in God's secret will that was not exposed to them would eventually about and they would realize that God brought this situation about to save lives and here we need to establish that when it comes to God's secret will you have no idea what you're going to face in the coming days you might have a pretty good guess but there are things in God's word that he has not expressly told you will happen every detail But we need to establish that God is good and he is just, that God is working all things according to the purpose of his will, Ephesians chapter 1. Remember Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, the most high God rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. The crucifixion of Jesus was done in accord with all that God had predestined to take place, Acts chapter 4. Christians suffer according to the will of God, 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 17. Whatever happens tomorrow is only as the Lord wills. Remember James chapter 4. Come now, you who say you're going to go do business and gain a bunch of money. You should be saying if the Lord wills. Because you have no idea if God is actually going to permit that to happen. Now there's much more that could be said about God's secret will. That is the things he has hidden from us. That he has not revealed to us every single thing that will happen. And even though it's an aspect of God's will we can never truly understand, it does help kill self-centeredness. Even a finite understanding of such an infinite doctrine can cause us to trust God and not be afraid. Remember, going back to what was said at the beginning, uh, the quote from Thomas Brewer, the struggle to find God's will is a struggle with certainty. We naturally seek as much certainty as possible in regard to decisions. Certainly, or certainty helps us feel more in control. And when we feel in control, we are safe. 
And if anything, God's secret will just reminds us that we're not in control and that he is. It reminds us that trusting God does not mean we get a heads up when evil or harm or suffering or hurt comes our way. Trusting God and trusting that he is in control means that even if, even if harm or suffering or hurt or evil does come our way, we know it can only come by God's will and his promise to be for our good. Another way this aspect of God's will, this secret will, is that it kills self-centeredness is because it causes us to be thankful. Because you may grow discontent with what God has or hasn't chosen to reveal. If you're scraping and clawing for God and you're praying and you're praying and you're searching scripture and you're doing the random scripture thing and you're saying, God, why won't you show me who I'm supposed to marry, what I'm supposed to do, where I'm supposed to move, where I'm supposed to work? You'll grow very frustrated and discontent with God. You may want more than what God has revealed. You may be convinced that the secret things of God belong to you. That's not what the verse says. The secret things of God belong to him. This is self-centeredness. And in our self-centeredness, when we try, to, we try to manipulate God into telling us what the secret things are. And understanding that God has a secret, hidden will by which he governs all things causes us to be thankful. You say, how is that possible? Because in those surprise moments of suffering and hardship, God doesn't just say, hey, good luck. Here's something I'm dropping on you just for the fun of it. No, in those moments of surprise, suffering, and hardship, God offers us peace in Christ. And when we have Christ, we see suffering as opportunities to thank God for the grace he supplies through Christ to endure what he has brought. Now again, a lot could be said about the second, uh, this secret will of God, but I want to move on to the second aspect of God's will and that is his revealed will his revealed will God's revealed will emphasizes rightful authority now this is what God has revealed plainly in scripture the reformers called this aspect of God's will God's will of precept or God's will of command okay so what this means is this revealed will of God centers around what God has commanded us to do there's no secrets in this aspect of God's will. God's not like trying to get us to guess. What do we do to please him? He tells us plainly in his word. He has clearly revealed in his word what he expects of us. What it is that we should do or should not do. Should not do. And I, want you, I just want to take one example among the dozens. Now notice what 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 1 to 3 says. It says... Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now notice what he says here. 
so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time is past. Uh, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. What is Paul saying in these verses? What is he saying in these verses? Very simply, what he's saying is be like Jesus, live for the will of God, live in obedience to the will of God, not the passions of our fallen humanity. And when Peter here refers to the will of God, he's not talking about the secret will of God. Peter's not asking you, hey, you need to live your life according to the things that God has not at all revealed. And you need to follow what God has revealed, the will of God, not the passions of our fallen humanity. He's talking about the revealed will of God, the, the commands of God. He's talking about what God in his word has clearly shown us what we should do and what he wants us to do. And so the goal when it comes to the revealed will of God, the commands that we read as we, as the New Testament expounds the teaching of Jesus, is that we obey God, that we be like Christ, that we have the same mind in us that was in Christ Jesus. I used the word nourishment earlier, don't know if you remember that. But Jesus was nourished in doing the will of God. Remember that John chapter 4, the disciples come and they, they bring him food. And they say, hey, Jesus, we brought you some food. And he goes, don't worry, I have food that you don't know about. And they start having, you know, one of those clueless discussions that the disciples often have is, well, did somebody bring him food? How did he get food? Is he hiding food in his cloak? Where is he? What's going on with this? And Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And this came because he was one with the Father. Jesus was not a religious phony who only obeyed on the outside, but on the inside was far from God. Jesus' life flowed out of his readiness to do what God commanded him to do. Could that be said of you? He delighted to do the will of God, Psalm chapter 40, because he loved his Father. Following God's commands will be drudgery to you. Let me say this again. It'll be drudgery to you if your heart is not conformed to God's. Now remember what was said about David in Acts chapter 13, verse 22. It talks about God here. It says, it says God has found in David, son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Okay, I found in Jesse a man after my own heart who will do all my will. God looked in at David and he saw a man who loved him. And that, the ma a man or woman who God looks into their heart and he sees a man or woman who loves him, that'll be the man or woman who will obey him. I read once that we do not trust that the one who is, that when we do not trust that the one who has given us orders is good and just, doing that person's will becomes oppressive. Just think of your kids. If they don't believe that you're good and just, which what they struggle to do, when you ask them to do something, what do they do? It's like drudgery. It's like you're being oppressive to me. Because in that moment, in that child's heart, they do not 
They do not see you being a good and just father or mother. In their sinfulness, they're saying, man, you're not being good and just to me. This, this is oppression. And the same is with God. If you, in your heart before God, do not trust him, and you do not trust and believe that he is good and just, then doing God's will will become oppressive. It'll become drudgery. It'll be like, I have to go to church. Great, God made me. Oh, great, I have to read my Bible. God made me. We all have wills. Now, when it comes to God's revealed will, the fact is we have wills. And we decide. We decide whether or not where we will obey God. We will obey God. Now, for the Christian, we have the Holy Spirit within us to help us kill sin and put on righteousness, to kill the works of the flesh and show the fruits of the Spirit. We have the grace of God to empower us when we are weak. We have the promise that God, uh, Philippians talks about, is working in us to conform us to the image of Jesus. But that doesn't mean God is going to override your will and force you to do his. If you're sitting around waiting for God to just like magically make you do his will, it's not going to happen. We have a part to play in our spiritual formation. And if we're not willing to be transformed by God, then there won't be much transformation happening. As a matter of fact, we often tell people who come into counseling. And it's often said, you, you will get out of counseling what you put into it. And if a person who comes in for counseling is unwilling to change, then there is, you, there is little use in coming in for counseling. So I think the question for you and I is simple. Do you want to obey God? Here's another question. Do you believe that you are able, because of Christ, to obey God? Do you believe that you are able, by the power of God, to do the will of God from the heart? Which is an exact quote from Ephesians 6.6. 6. Doing the will of God from the heart is the cure to self-centeredness. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, your ways are not my ways. Let's just establish that right now. God's thoughts, our thoughts, not the same. God's ways, our ways, not the same. For as, uh, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Here's what we all need to just, just come to believe and resolve to hold on to with all of our heart. God's ways are better than ours way, our ways. His ways are better. Your way of doing things will never be, be better than God's ways. It's like going to Walmart and buying a piece of furniture, and you open it up, and you're going to put together a piece of furniture, and you take the instructions and just throw them away, because after all, you got duct tape. What else do you need to put together some furniture? What else do you need to put together a baby's crib except for some duct tape? Yet if your wife got home after you got done putting together a crib for your newborn baby and it was being held together by duct tape, what do you think she would say to you? That's the godly term of what she will say to you. You better not think I'm going to lay my baby in that. What, what were you thinking? And you would respond to her, well, 
my ways are way better than the instructions. I've got this. I know how to put this thing together. I know the right way to do it. But that's what we do with God. God tells us to do something. We're like, God, I've got a better way to do my life. I've got a better way to think. I've got a better way to act. I've got a better attitude than what you want from me. Here's really the danger in a lot of this is because Jesus does warn that there is such a thing as doing God's will outwardly without having a personal relationship with him inwardly. Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 7 verse 7 that you can outwardly look like you're doing God's will, but you can lack inward conformity and unity with Christ himself, and that's a scary thing. That's where Jesus says in Matthew 7, many will come to me on that day and say, hey, I did all these religious things. And Jesus is going to say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. Go to the place of burning and gnashing of teeth and be tormented in hell forever. Because you thought I was just looking for outward conformity, but you had no relationship with me. Which is why as we close this section, I want to bring two key verses in mind. And I, I, I draw your attention to these verses that God has revealed, because these may be the very ones that saved some of you from an eternity in hell. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, and 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Here's what it says. God, our Savior, desires. It's the same idea of wills. Once all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And then in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, he says, The Lord is not wishing. Same idea of willing. That any should perish, but they all should reach repentance. God has revealed what he expects of every sinner, which is all of us. What he desires, what he wishes, what he commands, what he tells us to do. Repent and be saved. Repent and be saved. Not do religious things and hope that God is happy with you at the end of life. Not get baptized and hope that God is happy with you. Not conform to some outward religious standard. But his command, which you can either choose to obey or disobey, is to trust in Jesus who died on the cross for your sins. And if you disobey this command, if you disobey this God's desiring, this God's wishing, this God's here's what I want you to do. If you disobey this command, you'll perish. But if you receive this gift of grace, you will be saved. Which brings us to the last aspect of God's will. And again, we won't spend much time on this because we've kind of already talked about it. But number three, God's wisdom emphasizes how God's wisdom helps us make decisions not revealed in Scripture. Okay, so this this comes to where everybody now wants to listen up, right? Because now we're going to talk about your job and your marriage and how you figure this out. So now, uh, you know, these are the things that really interest us. We've seen that God's will is anything that he wants to happen. It's complex and has many different aspects. So to review, there are, there's the aspect of God's secret will, his eternal purposes. He ordains all things that come to pass. He is in control and that cannot be taken away. Next, we look at his revealed will. These are his commands that he has revealed in scripture, and they could be opposed and even disobeyed. And then there's this third aspect, 
And this aspect asks this question. It asks how or whether God's word can give us guidance on who to marry, or if we should remain single, or what school we should attend, or what occupation we should pursue. And this is where the common question comes in that we started with. What is God's will for my life? And again, this is, could be a dangerous question. It could be based on subjective, uh, subjectivity, the subjectivism and feelings. And many times this phrase assumes there's only one outcome. Right? God, who do you want me to marry? As if there's like only one outcome. Or God, what job should I choose? As if there's only one job. The phrase assumes only one outcome. But listen, if you take biblical principles, it could leave you with a range of options. And you're going to say to me, this is helping me not at all because I came in here this morning and I'm really struggling with, should I change jobs? Should I, work? Should I move to a different city? And I'm here to tell you that biblical wisdom could leave you with a number of options that would equally please God. Both could be pleasing to God. Psalm 37, verse 4. This is going to be a key passage here. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Of your heart. Now, we like that last part. Okay, God's going to give me the desire of my heart. Praise the Lord. You forget the first part. Delight yourself in the Lord. When you have right motives mixed with wisdom from God's word, it helps us weigh the pluses and the minuses. Because here's the thing about every single person in here. And, it's, and if you're a Christian, God has given you not only intelligence, but he has given you discernment. He's given you friends and pastors and others with biblical discernment to help us apply scripture to our lives. But at the end of the day, you must realize that there may be more than one option that pleases God. If you've never heard that before, I'm glad you're hearing it now. There may be more than one option about what job you're supposed to work that pleases God. There may be more than one option that pleases which God which car to buy. If there was an option of which car not to buy, he would have put it in his word. Now, yes, we need to take our finances. And, you know, there's a lot of things that play into this, which is, again, why I'm not saying you just say, oh, yeah, Ferrari, perfect one, that's the one I need, that's, he pleases God, after all, that's not what I'm saying. We need discernment, we need to take biblical principles, we need wisdom from the Holy Spirit. James chapter 1, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask God, he's going to give it to you. But God will not tell you which car to buy. But he does tell you to obey the government's driving laws. How's that going? God will not tell you which job to take, but he does tell you in Ephesians 5, 6, how he expects you to work at your job. He may not tell you exactly which woman or which man to marry, but he does tell you what he expects of the husband towards his wife and the wife towards her husband. He may not tell you, hey, you need to have two kids or four kids or six kids. But he does tell you how you are to treat and nurture and raise those kids. Using the intelligence and discernment that God has given you, you look in God's word for wisdom, but realize that you have to make choices. God's not going to make them for you. And so more important than anything, 
is importantly is, is obedience to God's will. I care where none of you work. Unless you're like a drug dealer or something, I, I care where none of you work. What I care about and what God's word cares about is how you work. These are matters and specifics, and these are just hard things at times. And God's not going to give us every single answer for every single question. He's not going to give us every single decision that we should make for every single choice we're faced with. We're not going to get God to show us what he has chosen not to reveal. The point of the message today is to motivate you through the mercy that is found in Christ to delight in doing what God has revealed and to find nourishment in doing God's will, to trust and believe that God's ways are better than your ways, to seek wisdom, yes, in areas he hasn't revealed, but at the end of it all, trust him, keep walking, make a decision, and don't turn God's will into a self-centered pursuit to be God. So number one, God's will is that you be saved. And then his will is that you be filled with the Spirit and that you follow the Spirit's leading and obedience to the commands of God in Scripture, what God has revealed in his word. He wants you to suffer as one who trusts in his goodness and wisdom. He wants you to find your hope and your peace and your comfort and your delight in him when trials and hardships come. That's it. Be saved, be obedient, and trust yourself to the faithful Savior in your suffering. I love how John MacArthur closed his book, and this is how I'll close on God's will. And you might be saying, after all, Pastor, aren't you going to tell me who to marry or where to go? The answer is absolutely not. You might be saying, well, you haven't done anything to help me with those questions. And here's the final principle that we talked, to, uh, talked about just a little bit ago. And it goes back to Psalm 37, verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. If all the other, other things are in place, you're a follower of Jesus, you've obeyed the command to repent and be saved and believe in Jesus, and you're walking by the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, obeying the commands of God, if you are suffering hardships and entrusting yourself to the Lord Jesus who suffered for you, if all those things are in place, then here is your final principle. You may want to write this down. Do what you want. Do what you want. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. If you're saved, if you're walking in spirit-filled obedience to Christ, if you're suffering as a good soldier of Christ, and there's a God-centeredness in your life and not a self-centeredness in your life, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're walking consistently in the will of God, you're suffering in faithfulness to him, it's time to get rolling, time to get moving, time to start serving. Don't be idle, get moving. If God closes the door, might just be another path or an open one. So that's a big topic on God's will. But here's his will for you. Be saved. Follow the spirit in obedience to his commands. Suffer as one who entrusts himself to their creator. And then do what you want. Because there's some things God's just not going to reveal. Let's pray. Lord, a uh, big topic on your will, and forgive us, Lord, for trying to figure out your secret will, even demanding it. 
Uh, I just pray that uh, you would give us Christians who no longer do what the Romans do in our culture and just pursue self and self-centeredness, but get our eyes off ourselves, trust you in your unseen, your hidden will, and that we would gladly and delightfully follow what you have revealed to us in your word. And Lord, that we would use all the biblical wisdom we can to make wise decisions on, yes, things like purchasing a house or the friends we're around. Of course, your word helps us with those things. But Lord, at the end of the day, uh, you want us to walk faithfully and uh, help us, Lord, just to delight ourselves in you so that you will give us the desires of our hearts. And I pray these things in Jesus' name.